Chapter Thirty One of Sister Carrie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser. Chapter Thirty One A Pet of Good Fortune. Broadway flaunts its joys. The effect of the city and his own situation on Hurstwood was paralleled in the case of Carey, who accepted the things fortune provided with the most genial good nature. New York, despite her first expression of disapproval, soon interested her exceedingly. Its clear atmosphere, more populous thoroughfares, and peculiar indifference struck her forcibly. She had never seen such a little flat as hers, and yet it soon enlisted her affection. The new furniture made an excellent showing. The sideboard, which Hurstwood himself arranged, gleamed brightly. The furniture for each room was appropriate, and in the so-called parlor, or front room, was installed a piano, because Carrie said she would like to learn to play. She kept a servant, and developed rapidly in household tactics and information. For the first time in her life she felt settled, and somewhat justified in the eyes of society, as she conceived of it. Her thoughts were merry and innocent enough. For a long while she concerned herself over the arrangement of New York flats, and wondered at ten families living in one building, and all remaining strange and indifferent to each other. She also marveled at the whistles of the hundreds of vessels in the harbor. The long, low cries of the sound steamers and ferry boats when fog was on. The mere fact that these things spoke from the sea made them wonderful. She looked much at what she could see of the Hudson from her west windows and of the great city building up rapidly on either hand. It was much to ponder over, and sufficed to entertain her for more than a year without becoming stale. For another thing, Hurstwood was exceedingly interesting in his affection for her. Troubled as he was, he never exposed his difficulties to her. He carried himself with the same self-important air, took his new state with easy familiarity, and rejoiced in Carrie's proclivities and successes. Each evening he arrived promptly to dinner, and found the little dining-room a most inviting spectacle. In a way, the smallness of the room added to its luxury. It looked full and replete. The white-covered table was arrayed with pretty dishes, and lighted with a four-armed candelabra, each light of which was topped with a red shade. Between Carrie and the girl, the steaks and chops came out all right, and canned goods did the rest for a while. Carrie studied the art of making biscuit and soon reached the stage where she could show a plate of light, palatable morsels for her labor. In this manner, the second, third, and fourth months passed. Winter came, and with it a feeling that indoors was best, so that the attending of theaters was not much talked of. Hurstwood made great efforts to meet all expenditures without a show of feeling one way or the other. He pretended that he was reinvesting his money in strengthening the business for greater ends in the future. 
He contented himself with a very moderate allowance of personal apparel, and rarely suggested anything for Carey. Thus the first winter passed. In the second year, the business which Hurstwood managed did increase somewhat. He got out of it regularly, the $150 per month which he had anticipated. Unfortunately, by this time Carey had reached certain conclusions, and he had scraped up a few acquaintances. Being of a passive and receptive rather than an active and aggressive nature, Carrie accepted the situation. Her state seemed satisfactory enough. Once in a while they would go to a theater together, occasionally, in season, to the beaches and different points about the city. But they picked up no acquaintances. Hurstwood naturally abandoned his show of fine manners with her and modified his attitude to one of easy familiarity. There were no misunderstandings, no apparent differences of opinion. In fact, without money or visiting friends, he led a life which could neither arouse jealousy nor comment. Carrie rather sympathized with his efforts and thought nothing upon her lack of entertainment such as she had enjoyed in Chicago. New York, as a corporate entity, and her flat, temporarily seemed sufficient. However, as Hurstwood's business increased, he, as stated, began to pick up acquaintances. He also began to allow himself more clothes. He convinced himself that his home life was very precious to him, but allowed that he could occasionally stay away from dinner. The first time he did this, he sent a message saying that he would be detained. Carrie ate alone and wished that it might not happen again. The second time, also, he sent word, but at the last moment. The third time he forgot entirely and explained afterwards. These events were months apart each. "'Where were you, George?' asked Carrie after the first absence. "'Tied up at the office,' he said genially. "'There were some accounts I had to straighten.' "'I'm sorry you couldn't get home,' she said kindly. "'I was fixin' to have such a nice dinner.' The second time he gave a similar excuse, but the third time the feeling about it in Carrie's mind was a little bit out of the ordinary. I couldn't get home, he said, when he came home later in the evening. I was so busy. Couldn't you have sent me word? asked Carrie. I meant to, he said, but you know, I forgot about it until it was too late to do any good. And I had such a good dinner, said Carrie. Now, it so happened that from his observations of Carrie, he began to imagine that she was of the thoroughly domestic type of mind. He really thought, after a year, that her chief expression in life was finding its natural channel in household duties. Notwithstanding the fact that he had observed her act in Chicago, and that during the past year he had only seen her limited in her relations to her flat and him by conditions which he made, and that she had not gained any friends or associates, he drew this peculiar conclusion. With it came a feeling of satisfaction in having a wife who could thus be content, and this satisfaction worked its natural result. That is, since he imagined he saw her satisfied, he felt called upon to give only that which contributed to such satisfaction. 
he supplied the furniture, the decorations, the food, and the necessary clothing. Thoughts of entertaining her, or leading her out into the shine and show of life, grew less and less. He felt attracted to the outer world, but did not think she would care to go along. Once he went to the theater alone. Another time he joined a couple of his new friends at an evening game of poker. Since his money feathers were beginning to grow again, he felt like sprucing about. All this, however, in a much less imposing way than had been his wont in Chicago. He avoided the gay places where he would be apt to meet those who had known him. Now, Carrie began to feel this in various sensory ways. She was not the kind to be seriously disturbed by his actions. Not loving him greatly, she could not be jealous in a disturbing way. In fact, she was not jealous at all. Hurstwood was pleased with her placid manner when he should have duly considered it. When he did not come home, it did not seem anything like a terrible thing to her. She gave him credit for having the usual allurements of men, people to talk to, places to stop, friends to consult with. She was perfectly willing that he should enjoy himself in this way, but she did not care to be neglected herself. Her state still seemed fairly reasonable, however. All she did observe was that Hurstwood was somewhat different. Sometime in the second year of their residence in 78th Street, the flat across the hall from Carey became vacant, and into it moved a very handsome young woman and her husband, with both of whom Carrie afterwards became acquainted. This was brought about solely by the arrangement of the flats, which were united in one place, as it were, by the dumbwaiter. This useful elevator, by which fuel, groceries, and the like were sent up from the basement, and garbage and waste were sent down, was used by both residents on one floor, that is, a small door opened into it from each flat. If the occupants of both flats answered to the whistle of the janitor at the same time, they would stand face to face when they opened the dumbwaiter doors. One morning, when Carrie went to remove her paper, the newcomer, a handsome brunette of perhaps twenty-three years of age, was there for a like purpose. She was in a night robe and dressing gown, with her hair very much tousled, but she looked so pretty and good-natured that Carrie instantly conceived a liking for her. The newcomer did no more than smile shamefacedly, but it was sufficient. Carrie felt that she would like to know her, and a similar feeling stirred in the mind of the other, who admired Carrie's innocent face. "'That's a real pretty woman who has moved in next door,' said Carrie to Hurstwood at the breakfast table." "'Who are they?' asked Hurstwood. "'I don't know,' said Carrie. "'The name on the bell is Vance. "'Someone over there plays beautifully. "'I guess it must be she.' "'Well, you never can tell what sort of people "'you're living next to in this town, can you?' "'said Hurstwood, expressing the customary New York opinion "'about neighbors.' "'Just think,' said Carrie. I've been in this house with nine other families for over a year, and I don't know a soul. These people have been here over a month, and I haven't seen anyone before this morning. It's just as well, said Hurstwood. 
You never know who you're going to get in with. Some of these people are pretty bad company. I expect so, said Carrie agreeably. The conversation turned to other things, and Carrie thought no more upon the subject until a day or two later, when, going out to market, she encountered Mrs. Vance coming in. The latter recognized her and nodded, for which Carrie returned a smile. This settled the probability of acquaintanceship. If there had been no faint recognition on this occasion, there would have been no future association. Carrie saw no more of Mrs. Vance for several weeks, but she heard her play through the thin walls which divided the front rooms of the flats, and was pleased by the merry selection of pieces and the brilliance of their rendition. She could play only moderately herself, and such variety as Mrs. Vance exercised bordered, for Carrie, upon the verge of great art. Everything she had seen and heard thus far, the merest scraps and shadows, indicated that these people were, in a measure, refined and in comfortable circumstances. So Carrie was ready for any extension of the friendships which might follow. One day Carrie's bell rang, and the servant, who was in the kitchen, pressed the button which caused the front door of the general entrance on the ground floor to be electrically unlatched. When Carrie waited at her own door on the third floor to see who it might be coming up to call on her, Mrs. Vance appeared. "'I hope you'll excuse me,' she said. "'I went out a while ago and forgot my outside key, so I thought I'd ring your bell.' This was a common trick of other residents of the building, whenever they'd forgotten their outside keys. They did not apologize for it, however." Certainly, said Carrie. I'm glad you did. I do the same thing sometimes. Isn't it just delightful weather, said Mrs. Vance, pausing for a moment. Thus, after a few more preliminaries, this visiting acquaintance was well launched, and in the young Mrs. Vance, Carrie found an agreeable companion. On several occasions, Carrie visited her and was visited. Both flats were good to look upon, though that of the Vances tended somewhat more to the luxurious. "'I want you to come over this evening and meet my husband,' said Mrs. Vance, not long after their intimacy began. "'He wants to meet you. You play cards, don't you?' "'A little,' said Carrie. "'Well, we'll have a game of cards. If your husband comes home, bring him over.' "'He's not coming to dinner tonight,' said Carrie. "'Well, when he does come, we'll call him in.' Carrie acquiesced, and that evening met the portly Vance, an individual a few years younger than Hurstwood, and who owed his seemingly comfortable matrimonial state much more to his money than to his good looks. He thought well of Carrie upon the first glance, and laid himself out to be genial, teaching her a new game of cards and talking to her about New York and its pleasures. Mrs. Vance played some upon the piano, and at last Hurstwood came. "'I am very glad to meet you,' he said to Mrs. Vance when Carrie introduced him, showing much of the old grace which had captivated Carrie. "'Did you think your wife had run away?' said Mr. Vance, extending his hand upon introduction. "'I didn't know but what she might have found a better husband,' said Hurstwood. 
He now turned his attention to Mrs. Vance, and in a flash Carrie saw again what she for some time had subconsciously missed in Hurstwood, the adroitness and flattery of which he was capable. She also saw that she was not well-dressed, not nearly as well-dressed as Mrs. Vance. These were not vague ideas any longer. Her situation was cleared up for her. She felt that her life was becoming stale, and therein she felt cause for gloom. The old helpful, urging melancholy was restored. The desirous Carrie was whispered to concerning her possibilities. There were no immediate results to this awakening, for Carrie had little power of initiative, but nevertheless she seemed ever capable of getting herself into the tide of change where she would be easily borne along. Hurstwood noticed nothing. He had been unconscious of the marked contrast which Carrie had observed. He did not even detect the shade of melancholy which settled in her eyes. Worst of all, she now began to feel the loneliness of the flat and seek the company of Mrs. Vance, who liked her exceedingly. "'Let's go to the matinee this afternoon,' said Mrs. Vance, who had stepped across into Carrie's flat one morning, still arrayed in a soft pink dressing gown, which she had donned upon rising. Hurstwood and Vance had gone their separate ways nearly an hour before. "'All right,' said Carrie, noticing the air of the petted and well-groomed woman in Mrs. Vance's general appearance. She looked as though she was dearly loved and her every wish gratified. "'What shall we see?' "'Oh, I do want to see Nat Goodwin,' said Mrs. Vance. "'I do think he is the jolliest actor. "'The papers say this is such a good play.' "'What time will we have to start?' asked Carrie. "'Let's go at one and walk down Broadway from 34th Street,' said Mrs. Vance. "'It's such an interesting walk. "'He's at the Madison Square.' "'I'll be glad to go,' said Carrie. "'How much will we have to pay for seats?' "'Not more than a dollar,' said Mrs. Vance. The latter departed, and at one o'clock reappeared, stunningly arrayed in a dark blue walking dress, with a knobby hat to match. Carrie had gotten herself up charmingly enough, but this woman pained her by contrast. She seemed to have so many dainty little things which Carrie had not. There were trinkets of gold, an elegant green leather purse set with her initials, a fancy handkerchief exceedingly rich in design, and the like. Carrie felt that she needed more and better clothes to compare with this woman, and that anyone looking at the two would pick Mrs. Vance for her raiment alone. It was a trying, though rather unjust thought, for Carrie had now developed an equally pleasing figure, and had grown in comeliness until it was a thoroughly attractive type of her color of beauty. There was some difference in the clothing of the two, both of quality and age, but this difference was not especially noticeable. It served, however, to augment Carrie's dissatisfaction with her state. The walk down Broadway, then as now, was one of the remarkable features of the city. There gathered, before the matinee and afterwards, not only all the pretty women who loved a showy parade, but the men who loved to gaze upon and admire them. 
It was a very imposing procession of pretty faces and fine clothes. Women appeared in their very best hats, shoes, and gloves, and walked arm-in-arm arm on their way to the fine shops or theaters strung along from 14th to 34th Streets. Equally, the men paraded with the very latest they could afford. A tailor might have secured hints on suit measurements, a shoemaker on proper lasts and colors, a hatter on hats. It was literally true that if a lover of fine clothes secured a new suit, it was sure to have its first airing on Broadway. So true and well understood was this fact that several years later a popular song, detailing this and other facts concerning the afternoon parade on matinee days, and entitled, What Right Has He on Broadway?, was published, and had quite a vogue about the music halls of the city. In all her stay in the city, Carrie had never heard of this showy parade, had never even been on Broadway when it was taking place. On the other hand, it was a familiar thing to Mrs. Vance, who not only knew of it as an entity, but had often been in it, going purposely to see and be seen, to create a stir with her beauty and dispel any tendency to fall short in dressiness by contrasting herself with the beauty and fashion of the town. Carrie stepped along easily enough after they got out of the car at 34th Street, but soon fixed her eyes upon the lovely company which swarmed by and with them as they proceeded. She noticed suddenly that Mrs. Vance's manner had rather stiffened under the gaze of handsome men and elegantly dressed ladies, whose glances were not modified by any rules of propriety. To stare seemed the proper and natural thing. Carrie found herself stared at and ogled. Men in flawless topcoats, high hats, and silver-headed walking sticks elbowed near and looked too often into conscious eyes. Ladies rustled by in dresses of stiff cloth, shedding affected smiles and perfume. Carrie noticed among them the sprinkling of goodness and the heavy percentage of vice. The rouged and powdered cheeks and lips, the scented hair, the large, misty, and languorous eye were common enough. With a start, she awoke to find that she was in fashion's crowd, on parade in a show place, and such a show place. Jewelers' windows gleamed along the path with remarkable frequency. Florist shops, furriers, haberdashers, confectioners, all followed in rapid succession. The street was full of coaches. Pompous doormen in immense coats, shiny brass belts and buttons, waited in front of expensive salesrooms. Coachmen in tan boots, white tails, and blue jackets waited obsequiously for the mistresses of carriages who were shopping inside. The whole street bore the flavor of riches and show, and Carrie felt that she was not of it. She could not, for the life of her, assume the attitude and smartness of Mrs. Vance, who, in her beauty, was all assurance. She could only imagine that it must be evident to many that she was the less handsomely dressed of the two. It cut her to the quick, and she resolved that she would not come here again until she looked better. At the same time, she longed to feel the delight of parading here as an equal. 
uh, then she would be happy. End of chapter 31. Recording by Roger Moline.